Hi everyone, this is Brandon with a quick word before the podcast. This holiday season, if you're planning to donate to any nonprofits, please consider supporting Glass Tire's annual fund. All of the money we raise goes straight back into our reporting on Texas artists, galleries, museums, and more. If you'd like to make a one-time donation or become a sustaining monthly supporter, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. One more time, that's glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to this week's Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I'm Brandon Zeck. I'm Christina Reese. And this week we are talking about what is perhaps the biggest story in Texas art this week. I would definitely say so, if not the biggest story uh, in the art world nationally. And that is the opening of the Museum of Fine Arts Houston's Kinder Building. Uh, this is a long time coming. This is a $450 million campaign that is wrapping up, and this is kind of the capstone of that entire campaign and the entire project. Um, for those of you who aren't in Houston or who haven't been following this story, this goes back at least formally eight or nine years ago uh, when the architects, Stephen Hull architects, uh, were chosen for the project. But you know, informally, it goes back much longer. There was an interview published on Glass Tire with Peter Marzio, the longtime director of the museum, way back in 2002, in which he talked about a modern and contemporary building for the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Um, this building, it is mostly the museum's modern and contemporary collection. Uh, a lot of this work has actually been purchased in the last 20 years by the museum. This has been a collection that is, uh, I mean, a little while in the making, but it's it, it's not the oldest collection, but it was very rapidly bought. Um, and there's some really good work in it. This project as a whole included the demolishing and rebuilding of the Glassell School of Art. It included some new storage facilities from the museum. It included a new conservation center, which uh, we got to walk through a year or two ago, and it is beautiful. Um, mm. And includes a lot of new parking garages. It's it's a whole campus <laughs> redevelopment and reimagining um, with a hefty price tag on it. But this Kinder building specifically, it's depending on the way you count it, if you count the parking or not, it's either <laughs> about 250,000 square feet, or if you don't count the parking, it's about 180 uh, some odd thousand square feet with more than 100,000 square feet of exhibition space. This yeah. building is a, a little deceptive. Um, I didn't think it was as big as it was, but once you get inside and you start walking around, you truly realize the size. Mm -hmm. um, and... With that, we're going to dig in and talk a little bit about what the building is, some of the complexities around it, and uh, our kind of first impressions of it. Yeah. So the first time you and I walked through it was on October 28th, and um, it was a very small group of press people. It was uh, three of us from Glastar, you and me and Christopher, as well as a couple of other people, a few other people from other Houston press, and Gary Tintero walked us through it, and at the time... 
as recently as October 28th, there were construction workers everywhere. They were still Mm -hmm. just furiously finishing the building. Um, About maybe a third of the artwork had already been installed. And, um, but you went back on Monday of this week and, Mm -hmm. um, saw it all completed and, and everything was installed and hung and on display. And I'm sorry that I missed that. I was out of town. I'm looking forward to going back. And then today we're recording this on a Thursday. You'll hear it on Sunday, but today we published your photo essay preview. Mm -hmm. You've, uh, put a ton of photos, good photos up of, um, the inside of this building, kind of a walkthrough tour of the inside as well as some of the outside of the building. Um, so a lot of people obviously still haven't seen it yet. Most people have not seen it. And just for the public's, um, information, it is opening on the 21st, November 21st, this weekend, as you are hearing this. And, uh, this first week is, I believe it's free to the public. So yeah, at least a couple days. Um, I believe it's free, uh, with timed entry from the 21st to the 25th. So you have a little bit of time to see it uh, for free before the kind of normal MFAH uh, general admission prices come back. Yeah, so it's giant, and uh, and I assume with the protocols in place, um, it will be a reasonably safe COVID uh, experience. So at least we're saying that um, right now. But, you know, we, we covered some of this terrain um, when you and I went back to when the MFAH was the first major museum in the U.S. to reopen during COVID. We went to mm-hmm. <clears throat> what we think of as the, you know, the original MFAH. Uh, what, what, what month was that? That was May, wasn't it? That was in May. That was late May. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so we talked about um, how it felt and whether it was safe and what the protocols were. And, and I, I would assume everything will be pretty much the same with this gigantic building. And I shot a top five with Emily Peacock uh, this week as well. And we were talking about how there's no reason for you to get within 20 feet of another person, especially in a building this big. It is giant. And, you know, it's almost deceptive. It's what you're saying. You know, from the outside, I just couldn't get a feel for it. And then you walk in. Actually, when I first walked in, I thought, oh, it's not going to be big enough. But man, once you really get in there and start getting around, it is big enough. It's big. It's really big. And it had to be big. How could it not be big? Because the MFAH has a giant collection and we only get to see a fraction of it at any given time. Um, They needed the space. They desperately needed the space. One of the reasons that I think this building, I don't know, that it was hard to get a good handle on it is because... The, the point that it's situated at, in theory, it is a good vantage point because it is on the corner of a relatively major intersection, um, kind of south of Houston's downtown and a little bit south of Houston's midtown. It's in the museum district, uh, just adjacent to the museum's other buildings. But at the same time, there are a lot of trees around the buildings, and it's kind of hard to get a far back vantage point of it. Um, the only time I think you'll really be able to get a view from the top of it was, will be if you're able to walk up the ramp on the Glassell School of Art. And that, um, at least the time when I went on Monday, uh, you couldn't do that. So it's really hard to get a handle on what this building actually is because it looks different from every vantage point, but also it's it's very uniform on the outside. It's, it's covered with these glass tubes. I, I have to be honest, I don't know if I'm the biggest fan of the exterior of this building, uh, which was probably one of the reasons that I was a little skeptical mm-hmm. about it going in, in all honesty, because I, I don't know, just when, you, when you're seeing this being built or when you see the mock-ups of the outside, it does have character, but it didn't have as much character as I thought a museum 
fine arts building could have. Which they they address the character really, I think, on the inside. But let's back up. So it's Stephen Hall Architects out of New York City. I would call them a Starkitect architecture firm. They've done a lot of museums, probably at least 30 worldwide um, abroad and here. They, they do a lot of important stuff. I wouldn't say, you know, when you're talking about the way the outside looks... I wouldn't say that Stephen Hall has a particularly kind of signature look. I wouldn't say that you would just immediately walk up to this thing and go, oh, it's like a, it's a Frank Gehry or it's, a, you know, certain architects really do have a signature. David Ajay. Like the Mies building that's right across the street, the Mies van der Rohe building. Right, right, right. So you wouldn't necessarily know which architect was in charge of this one. When you come up on it, you do know you. it certainly it reads as a big, important, new, flashy building. They do tend to have a very... I will say I took a really good, hard look at their portfolio before we started recording, and I will say that almost everything they do, to me, looks very contemporary. You know, there's mm-hmm. a little bit of callback to modernism here and there, a little bit of callback to brutalism here and there, along with, you know, hand-in-hand with modernism, same sort of thing. But I would say um, the stuff looks like now and the future. And I, I think that that's kind of where they tend to go with their designs, even though they're not particularly uniform. The outside's okay, and we were talking before about well the fact that it's supposed to sort of glow at night so Mm -hmm. um because neither one of us have driven by it at night and it hasn't been open i just looked up some pictures and i found some of it sort of glowing uh in the evening and i hope that that is the case and that it has a lovely glow and that would explain a little bit about why it looks the way it does in the daytime it's really meant to glow at night now Mm -hmm. the inside is a whole other story you get in there and you know what? It's really pretty spectacular. Um, yes. It's got a kind of the, the center section is soaring. It has a kind of Guggenheim um, sort of ramp type thing. Yeah, it has a rotunda feel, but it's not it, it doesn't overtake the space like it kind of does in the Guggenheim. Right. No, it's not the it's not a fascistic rotunda. It is a, a workable one. And um uh, and there is art everywhere. I will say they are really using the space. There's art, and I saw it before you know before they even got everything up. I'm going to, partly by your photo essay. They've put art in every single part of that building: mm-hmm. the corridors, the hallways, the ramps, the blood, everything. And um, and it's great. It's so and call me COVID brain right now, but for me. That's exciting. We can talk about some of the, you know, political implications of what it means that this building is opening now or that it had this price tag or whatever. But Mm -hmm. my overall impression is that this is good for Houston. It's good for the art. uh, It's good for the MFAH, of course. And it's great for art lovers. It's going to be very good for art lovers. And right now it's even good for Texas and Houston artists because there is uh, quite a bit of Texas art and Houston art inside this new building, which I think is great. And I think it's that's a kind of an obvious choice, but we'll talk a little bit more about what's on show in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, I like it. I think it feels good. I think that the space, they've done a nice job of... Um, Having intimate spaces and larger spaces, the spaces are really varied. Uh, I think the lighting is good. You already know how much I like the floors. And I'm not just talking about the terrazzo. I'm talking about that ingrain wood that's in the upper levels. I love that. Yeah, that's Um, the the feeling. You know, the Guggenheim feeling goes a little bit past the kind of 
odd amoeba shaped rotunda that circles all of the floors. So this building, it is three floors tall. There's also kind of a, a, a basement level that has the tunnels to the other buildings, which we'll get into in a second, but it has this kind of amoeba amorphous shape of a rotunda with a railing that goes all around. So you can kind of get different vantage points. So the, the poor terrazzo floors in the kinder building echo the terrazzo floors that are in the brown pavilion uh, back from the 70s. Uh, th- this building kind of has a very Houston and Texas and l- local push to it because, you know, it, it has all of the all of the platitudes, but also all of the family connections that you would that you would expect from something like this it's like the mm-hmm. the person that poured the terrazzo um in this new building i is i believe the the son of the person that poured the terrazzo in the old building that's right um it's very smartly materials focused and then on the mm-hmm. second floor uh christina you and i both agree on this it has a very solidly 60s feel especially yeah. because that second floor opens onto the modern art galleries mm-hmm. so it's everything from you know Lipschitz, Matisse, Picasso, Magritte, and it has the kind of uh, Guggenheim 60s. Uh, Christina, you were mentioning the wood ingrain floors, so it's like little small wooden tiles that make up the floor and are oh, solid as a rock. I will tell you that much. Yeah, um, you you, could, you can't hurt that thing with a jackhammer. But I will say that it may show dust because it's quite a dark floor. Which actually, I love the look of it. Again, they're probably going to be needing to mop it pretty much every night. But um, yeah, it does. It has a good kind of '60s New York City feel. Um, throughout a lot of the galleries. One thing that would betray that is if you look up at the ceilings, the ceilings are so contemporary in their curvature and the way that the architecture had to have been rendered and engineered is extremely, extremely contemporary. But, um, you know, I would say, oh, God, in the photography galleries with the carpeted floor, which is really nice, and there's a lot of photography on show, which, of course, we want to see from the MFH. We don't want the photography to be pushed down into a lower-level corridor anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it's got, it does have a real variation in feel. And downstairs where the terrazzo is, there are these, these galleries that, um, with these giant plate glass windows that face the streets. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the idea is that people, that they're going to kind of turn the, the street between the two, uh, main sections of the campus into kind of more of a walkable plaza. Mm-hmm. And people should be able to see quite a bit of art, even as they're just walking down the sidewalk through these big plate glass windows. So when you walk into the building, you're immediately confronted with some artwork. Right now they've got a, a show of kinetic artworks, primarily in one of the big, uh, downstairs rooms, but You know, it does have a a kind of a pretty good indoor-outdoor relationship with the Noguchi Garden. They've put some new outdoor work out there, a new commission. Outside of the plate glass windows, you just generally have kind of a good sense of sort of an indoor-outdoor relationship between the museum and the commissions that are outside as well as the Noguchi Sculpture Garden. So, you know, they've worked hard. And then there's a restaurant and a cafe, also with a lot of windows. You know, I I feel like... um, They've worked hard to make it as, in a way, sort of accessible even to people who aren't bothering to walk in or pay to walk in, um, which is an interesting kind of, I would think, something that's addressing people's ideas today about what a museum should be. Again, we'll get into that in a little bit. But then, so, in terms of how they've laid out the, um, the museum, you've got, you can speak to this a little bit better since you've been back. So there's the ground floor, then you go down, 
there's the tunnels. We'll talk about that in a second. You go up into um, modernism um, and contemporary art and abstraction, and then the Latin American. Let's talk about the Latin American presence uh, in this museum. Yeah, so this is um, what I believe it would be accurate to say is one of the largest uh, like permanent collection displays of work by Latin American, South American, Brazilian, Venezuelan, um, Ecuadorian uh, art, um, maybe outside of those countries or in mm-hmm. the West. Uh, there was a big New York Times article about it recently. And, you know, a, a large portion of this is thanks to Mari Carmen Ramirez, who is the uh, curator of this art at the MFAH. And she's very well known in her field. And she has really built this collection with the support of um, some of the patrons in the city. Uh, But apparently, uh, again, according to that New York Times article, Latin American and Latino work represent 24% of the art on display uh, in the building. And that's meant to be a permanent uh, situation. Mm Mm-hmm. And the Latin American uh, section kind of mirrors some of the ethos throughout the building, which is, you know, decorative works are interspersed with furniture, are interspersed with textiles, are interspersed with paintings, drawings, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they, there's a, I remember when the Tate Modern opened um, in, I don't know if it was 2001, 2002, uh, going over there, they were, they were kind of an, a, an early early for us in this era, a contemporary art museum that decided to kind of do away with our regular compartmentalization or categories of art and start to put things together in new and interesting ways. And then the kind of the rest of the art world took off with that. But this is a, a continuation of that. And so there are these thematic galleries about, um, there's one on humor. Uh, let's see, there's one on... Um, yeah, so this is the third floor that you're talking about. So you, you get up off the second floor and the second floor is kind of separated a little, little more by, by uh, medium or it's medium slash era. So you have modern galleries, you have the Latin American galleries, you have the uh, craft and design galleries, you have the photography galleries, the works on paper galleries. Mm-hmm. And then once you go upstairs, um, the galleries open up a little bit. It has, it has a little more of a, I don't know, maybe maybe even like a Chelsea gallery feel to it just because their ceilings are tall. Like it, it kind of has a warehouse feel a little bit to it. It's a very contemporary feel. Right, like some of, some of the Gagosian's biggest galleries in Chelsea. You're not wrong about that. Well, with that, Christina, we, we talked about how you and I talked about how this museum really kind of has more of a New York feel than uh, like a California or a Midwest or in, any of the other art spaces that we've been in. Like the closest comparisons we can make is Guggenheim, maybe even MoMA here and there or Chelsea galleries. It's very kind of East coast. Yeah. And the new Whitney and the old Royer Mm -hmm. building. And yeah, um, that's true. I don't know why it didn't remind me much of LA, but it really doesn't. And it feels like it should because of uh, where we are, but um, because I would think of kind of Houston as being a little bit more LA than New York, but yeah, it just, it has a New York feel, which is cool. I want to go back for just a second before we get into the thematic galleries upstairs. That works on paper uh, gallery. I was so, that's when I really started gripping my sides because they had that all installed when I was there on the 28th. And I was like, God, it's so good to see this work. And the Latin American stuff, I got to say, 
and I will reiterate this because I said it in the top five. I mean, I've never seen most of this work before, and it's yeah. terrific. It's so, so nice to see it. I can't wait to go back. I'll probably go back this week um, because I really want to see everything, but I really want to spend a lot more time in those galleries. Um, I think it's a fantastic collection. I'm so impressed, and I'm so glad that it's all out and that we can see it. Mm -hmm. You'll get some old favorites in the American and European galleries. You'll see, you know, you'll see Picasso and Matisse and all those cats. But um, <laughs> in the Latin American stuff, you're going to see names and collectives you've never seen before, possibly, unless that you've studied it before. Um, and I think that it's such a boon for Houston, and it's such a boon for Houston scholarship. Uh, and I think that we're going to have scholars coming from all over the world to study this collection. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm really impressed. That's one of the most exciting things about the whole thing to me. And I, um, and it's one of the reasons I'm so, um, ready to get back over there this week is to look at the Latin American work. So going up to the third floor, the thematic exhibitions, um, a lot of this work is by artists who are still alive. And a lot of it was also made within the last 20 or 30 years, which is kind of unique. During the preview, uh, when he was talking about what this building was, Gary Tintero said that the third floor is basically a standalone museum of contemporary art. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that kind of jives with all of the art spaces in Houston, especially considering the Contemporary Art Museum Houston is right across the street. Granted, they have different missions, they have different, you know, mindsets, but still it's, you know, it'll be in dialogue in some way, shape or form. And considering the push and pull of Houston, it'll be interesting to watch. Um, but the third floor, uh, and again, it's worth emphasizing all of these pieces, or at least the strong, strong majority of them are already in the MFAH's collection. So there's uh, five shows on the third floor. Each kind of has its own large gallery space. Uh, there's a show called Collectivity that explores uh, artists' use of materials and techniques and how that kind of reflects how they form community. There's a show called Color Into Light that is exactly what you would think it is. It has a lot of works by Carlos Cruz Diaz uh, and Joseph Albers and others. Uh, there's a show called Line Into Space, which is very monochromatic. It is... Again, if you're looking through the photo essay of this new building, you will be able to tell which installation the Line Into Space is. It is... Um, a little bit of everything, but just work that focuses on literally how a line creates a shape or how a line moves through space. Uh, there's a great piece in there by Ruth Asawa. Um, there's a show called LOL! Exclamation point that uh, is artists using humor. Um, I was particularly kind of happy to see this one because I've always talked about how uh, and always thought that art that uses humor doesn't really kind of get its due because it's funny. It sometimes isn't taken as seriously. Uh, there was some strong Houston connections in that with a painting by Rachel Hecker, a piece by the art guys, you know, there's the Claus Oldenburg fan, which is wonderful. And one of my favorite pieces in that museum, also William Wegman, uh, a ton of other artists as well. Um, and then there's a show called Border Mapping Witness, which again is exactly what you would think it is. Artists using maps and considering borders and how those uh, affect people and politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, one thing that we need to uh, point out, if you haven't already kind of uh, ascertained this from what we're talking about, is there's a lot of volume in this museum. So Well, and the work is installed close together, too. Like, the, the work is... Uh, <laughs> 
crammed in has such a negative connotation, but the work is crammed in, but it's crammed in very thoughtfully and it is well curated. You know, it, that's true. And I, I think people are kind of ready for some crammed in because for too long there was this idea that, you know, um, you needed everything needed to have a, tr- a tremendous amount of oxygen. And it actually started to get a little bit old because sometimes you just wanted more and sometimes more is more and it's terrific. And when you have a museum like the MFAH with the collection that it's got, it's kind of like, yeah, just go ahead and get it out there. We're ready. Yeah. Especially now, especially now we're just so hungry for it. But when I'm talking about volume, I'm talking about the volume of the museum itself. So mm-hmm. one thing that's true of a lot of these spaces, especially when you get upstairs to the third floor and especially uh, on the bottom floor and the tunnels, is there's so much space that they have room for these giant installations, these giant commissioned pieces. And so don't be surprised if you turn a corner and see a giant work of art and you didn't know that that was going to be there. Um, they really use the space in that way. They kind of play with it. Um, there are some nice kind of um, surprises in that regard. So uh, I just wanted to interject that so that people kind of understand that they're going to see some pretty big-ass pieces of art in this museum. Yeah. Well, and also pieces that, again, we've we've said this once or twice, it's kind of worth reemphasizing, pieces that you haven't seen in a little while or pieces that are kind of so prohibitive that it's hard to just put them up in the museum. Uh, pieces like there is, uh, the museum owns one of James Terrell's wedge work pieces, which is a kind of a mind bending light piece by James Terrell, but it is a build out and it is something you have to really commit to. And it, uh, it along with Kusama's infinity room, which, uh, actually isn't open right now because it's a small space and COVID, uh, but you know, it will probably be open soon along with a piece by, I might say this name wrong, uh, Gula Kosice. There's these kind of three installation environment type pieces on the first floor of this building. And, uh, Alison Dilly McGreen, the, the museum's curator said that they'll be up for probably at least two years, mm-hmm. um, you know, they may change after that. I'm not sure the museum does have a lot of these types of pieces, but again, they have to make a commitment to really install these. So the fact that these will be pseudo semi-permanent kind of makes sense. So, you know, following up on the, the immersive environment rooms uh, and there are uh, dedicated video rooms, of course, as well, new media and video rooms as well. But then we get down into the tunnels and the tunnels are so much fun and the school kids are going to have a blast in the tunnels. The tunnels um, are underground and they connect uh, this building with going across the campus to, is it the law or the Seraphim? Which building? The law building, the Caroline Weiss law building, the building that has uh, the majority of the museum's non-Western art. Right. Okay. So that's one tunnel. And then there's another tunnel that connects to the Glassell. And well, the whole thing about this is there's always, if you've ever been to the MFAH, you probably know the James Terrell light tunnel that connects the Beck building and the law building so that you don't have to walk outside. It's a very Houston thing. Tunnels are weirdly Houston, even though Houston floods, even though subterranean things don't seem like a good idea. Here we are. We have downtown tunnels and now we have MFAH tunnel systems. Um, So kind of inspired by or in keeping in that James Terrell uh, light tunnel idea. Um, the museum has two more light commissions in these tunnels between the law and the kinder building. There's a Carlos Cruz Diaz kind of like flood of color where there are these separate sections that kind of make it so that 
just you're awash in one single color. They're like color environments. And then going to the Glassell School of Art, there's a, a light work by uh, Olafar Eliasson, which is kind of the opposite. It is light that's, it's like this special yellowy light and it basically turns you grayscale so that you can only perceive uh, shades instead of hues. Yeah, it's a kind of the sulfurous yellow and it just sucks all the color out of the environment, including anyone who's walking through it. It's interesting. Um, so those are two, those will be two big attractions and the, the school buses have special places where they can pull up and, um, uh, oh, and also the parking garage to this thing, I think, as we've just said, it's pretty massive and, um, and it can j- spill right on into the museum. We saw the entrances to that. I don't know if, if anyone who's listening really cares so much about that, but there doesn't have to be a whole lot of walking around or walking around outside if you don't want to walk around outside in August. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go to this museum and stay indoors the entire time. When we did the um, the reopening of the MFAH in May, one of the things we talked about on our podcast especially was, you know, what is it to reopen a major national slash international museum in the middle of COVID? What does it mean for the workers? What does it mean for the workers who have to show up every day? Um, the non-management workers who are there on the ground doing the safety protocols, the guards, the even docents. Uh, you know, um, and I've been back to the MFH a couple of times. We were hoping and it seemed okay to us. There's that, and that overlaps with this kind of other major political thing that's been going on, especially this year, but really over the last five years, is a certain amount of institutional critique about what museums are, what they represent, what they are mm-hmm. from the bo- bottom up and the top down, and uh, and who makes the decisions, and who makes the decisions about what is in the part of the canon. And um, there's also kind of right now, I think, a a sort of general uh, skepticism or distaste for shows of blatant wealth. And there's absolutely no doubt that this is an incredibly expensive uh, venture. But, you know, when we talk about this museum in relation to institutional critique and safety and just the idea of tone deafness like does this museum read the room like what is the room right now the room right now is skeptical the room right now is skeptical of institutions it's skeptical of wealth it's skeptical of um curators and collectors telling and philanthropists telling us what we're supposed to look at and i think these are all um really important conversations that are taking place and the MFAH has come under fire um, on certain social media accounts that, you know, some of its workers have um, commented anonymously on what they they are concerned about when it comes to the MFAH. And I think all of that is fair. Um, I, you know, we need to address it because it's part of the conversation. The MFAH is not immune to criticism. No uh, as, as it turns out, if you follow these um, these social media accounts that where people uh, comment anonymously, it doesn't seem like any museum in Texas or anywhere is immune to criticism by its workers and by people who visit and by members. Um, I want to say, you know, the MFAH, I think because it's had such a lead up and it's had such a lead in time, throughout the political environment that we've been dealing with um, since Trump's election uh, and and beyond, I feel like they've 
done a good job of addressing a lot of this, especially in terms of what they've put in the galleries. It seems um, very fresh to me. In a way, I do wonder how this installation would have been different if, you know, the last five years of, uh, of of people speaking out about what how museums should be serving their communities hadn't happened. Like, one of the things about this new building is, yes, it is uh, probably a more inclusive installation, and it has so much thought put into it for that. But you know they uh, this museum and the the curators they are thoughtful themselves but they also were able to look at models of like how moma tried to revamp itself and how it tried to incorporate um works by people who were not traditionally in the canon because they were excluded from the canon into the permanent collection um and i think that they're kind of able in this building to draw on some of the uh, some of the work that other institutions have tried to do in the last little while. Absolutely, absolutely. And this idea about, you know, the the, the really smart and sophisticated way to, uh, to understand and present the cross-pollination of ideas uh, globally, uh, movements mm-hmm. and ideas, eras, artists, um, taking influence and and uh, and running with it no, no matter where they are. I think that you see a good deal of that here, and I think that you see kind of thoughtful flow of ideas and philosophies in the mu- this museum. Um, no museum is perfect. I will say that this one also, I feel like the MFAH must have, must have listened to critics for probably a number of years now about whether or not they've included enough local art or Texas art in their walls. Mm-hmm. And I think that they've tried to address a lot of that here. There is so much strong art in Houston. There are so many great artists in Houston, and there are Houston artists represented in this museum. I hope that they will continue to run with that as well. Um, because as far as I can see, it all holds up. It, it, there's no delineation in quality or presentation or impact of Houston artists work and anyone else's work in, in the kinder building. And I love that. Of course, that's the kind of thing that you and I just live for. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the, the horn that we're tooting all the time is that we love, um, our Texas artists because they're so damn good. Um, so it's nice to see their work inside the galleries. And I, you know, so right now I'm having a hard time coming up with a reason to not go see the shows and to, to see the installations and to see the new building. It seems like it, um, it's kind of a pretty good, it's kind of a feel good experience for those of you who uh, want to venture out and feel okay putting your mask on and going into a, you know, 180,000 square foot interior space. Um, what do you think? Well, it's just so hard because where we are in the world right now with coronavirus cases being worse now than they have been in such a long time, like, yes, I, I went to a preview of this building and, you know, sat at chairs that were 10 feet apart from everyone else while we heard the director talk about the building and everything. But I don't know, Christina. (laughs) The other thing is, I, I don't know how crowded this building is going to be of course the museum is still operating on capacity but at the same time how capacity works for a museum building where people can just walk between buildings um and how you know how that affects the frontline people and the 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 guards and all of the staff who are 
taking tickets and selling things in the gift shop. And, you know, all of that ripple effect is something that truly matters because these are the real people who are kind of making this building tick now that the building has been built. Um, I think it's just a, a, a really difficult ongoing conversation that we're going to hear uh, uh, thoughts from these people who are, in the, who are on the front lines. And I mean, to the general kind of person coming in from the woodlands or Sugarland or A-Leaf or wherever to go to this museum, you know, they're not going to be privy to those conversations, but it's, it's something that still needs to be considered. I, yes. I, I feel like in a way I'm almost talking around the problem and I'm not trying to do that, but it's just, I almost don't know anymore. Like you and I had the experience where when we uh, attended the museum uh, in late May, grand scheme, we felt okay as the visitors, right? Because there were so few people. Well, yeah. And when I was just now, when I was just now to kind of went off on my reverie about Texas art being in the museum and it turning into a thing about that, like, please go see it. Yes, you're right. And what, what I do believe about the people who are, have to be in the museum every single day to deal with the visitors, I think they should be getting hazard pay. I think they should be you know, this is this is me just saying, pay them more. Pay them more if you're going to make them show up to work every day. And I feel that way about every single museum that's open right now is, is pay your wage workers more money if you're going to make them be working through COVID. Now, you know, um, I'd much rather go to the MFAH right now than go to Target. I'd yes. much rather go to the MFAH right now than go to the grocery store. Um, so, because I do feel like people are able to stand very far apart. And I think that people in these museum, uh, environments, visitors, I feel like they're kind of fundamentally respectful of, um, what they're being called upon to do. And I, and I, that's what I've seen when I've gone into museums. I've also been to the DMA. I've been to the Nasher. I've been to the Manil. Um, I haven't seen people flouting the rules. I haven't seen museum workers having to deal with irate um, visitors, although they may have to. Yeah. Um, and if they do, again, let's let's jack up their pay. Uh, you know, if you can pay four hundred fifty million dollars for a building, you can pay your workers uh, enough to make them feel a little bit better about having to show up to work every day. That's the end of my rant, but I do feel strongly about it. It is kind of ironically funny in a way that this building is opening right now because you know like we mentioned at the top of the podcast the fact that it's been eight nine years in the works i mean half of optics is timing <laughs> and it if is. you can't control the timing it's like it, no wonder you're going to be criticized for opulence and for uh, stating the facts of opening a 450 million dollar building because well i mean in Glass Tire, the MFAH has been criticized for that by uh, our, yes. our former publisher, Rainy Knudsen, just because mm -hmm. $450 million is a lot of money that could do a lot of things in a community if it wasn't building a building or building a conservation center. But, you know, just how we allocate that. And it, it, there's this argument is uh, is so big. <laughs> it's, I think that it's I so think, big. I, I, but yes, it, and we could go on and on, but I will say that representation inside the walls of a major institution is a big, big deal, especially for young people who are getting out there in the world and figuring out what art is. And most artists I know have some story 
that was transformative for them about mm-hmm. either going with a school to a museum or their parents or their grandparents or their aunt or uncle or their, you know, their, the neighbor kids' parents taking them to a museum for the first time and seeing art in a beautiful institution that contextualizes it, that, that installs it well with the right lighting and around the other right artwork that has it all just click into place. It really is. It's like a light bulb going off in the head of an emerging artist who's mm-hmm. eight years old, that this is a thing that they can do. And I think the what's going on with this new building is that the representation has just broken wide open. It's fantastic. You have artists from all over the world and everyone gets this awesome showcase for what they're doing. And I think that the Houston community and the international community, when COVID finally, you know, dies down and we get the vaccines and probably in 2022 when the world starts Mm -hmm. to show up to this building, I think that it's generally going to be a good thing for the psychology of young people who are learning how to take art seriously. That may be kind of old school, but that's a whole different um, uh, conceit or idea from taking $450 million and putting bits and pieces of art out into a million communities. That's another kind of thing. There's two different yeah. things that we're talking well, about. Well, and one here. of the things, Christina, you're talking about with that, I I hadn't ever heard this statistic, or if I had, I didn't remember it, but uh, Gary Tintero said that 92% of the MFAH's visitors are local or, you know, greater yeah. Houston local, which in a way it makes sense because Houston is not New York. Houston is not LA. Um, this is a place where school kids come. Like I, if I ever go on a Thursday on the museum's free day, I see buses of school kids at the museum or, you know, oh. I, I used to. Um, yeah. 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 Lines of buses. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and this is a place that people from Houston, visit or we'll go once a year or, you know, we'll make the special trip when the family is able to save up to buy tickets because granted the MFAH is not the cheapest museum to visit. And I I think Christina, what you're saying about those experiences that people can have, I I think it is possible that the art within this building, um, as long as the installations continue to, whenever they rotate, continue to be as thoughtfully put together as they are on this initial iteration and become even more thoughtful and even more inclusive as time goes on. Um, I, I think it'll make a big difference on our city's young, budding artists. Yeah. You know, I'm just not ready to let go of the idea that the museum is a place of contemplation and, and even reverence. I'm not ready to let go of revering great art. And I think museums are a terrific way to do it. And I think that they can present you with a big chunk of it at the same time, not an overwhelming amount of it, like an art fair, but a very um, thoughtful and measured environment for seeing a lot of art in one day where you come away from it and you feel better. You feel better about humanity, about the world, about the future, because you know that these things are being put out in the world by people who are thinking about this. And you and these things are also being purchased by major museums like the MFAH who want to put it out in front of the public. And I, I take heart in that. And I, I think a lot of our listeners 
probably do too at, at every age. And I'm, I'm just not ready. I, I think that all museums need to be held accountable. All institutions, glass tire, everyone needs to be held accountable uh, for what we put out in the world. But I, I'm not giving up on museums. I'm glad museums are taking, are doing some soul searching. But um, I'm excited about this building. I'm excited about this collection. I'm excited about finally getting to see parts of this collection that I've never seen before. Yeah, numbers are bad out there. We say this every time we sign off of a top five or an art dirt, but my God, the numbers are terrible. Please be careful. Please wear your mask. I do believe that masks make a difference. If you choose to go to this building, be smart. I, I don't know if it will continue, but before at least you could tell the number of tickets that were sold already on the Museum of Fine Arts' website before you went. So that's one of the ways that I tried to make sure that I could go and have it not be crazy. If that continues, try and use that or, you know, use your best judgment. Yeah. Use your best judgment. If it looks, if it looks like it's going to be too crowded, I guess you could turn around and walk out. I haven't, um, I haven't experienced that kind of thing yet in a museum, but, um, everyone, yeah, just use your common sense. And if you're a high risk person, maybe don't go to museums yet. As far as the, their choice to go ahead and open it this weekend, I will say that it looks to me like it was either now or a year from now. So, you know, in terms of like, when is it going to be safe? I think we're looking at another year of um, it not necessarily being safe to do interior public spaces, period. So, again, you're kind of taking whatever risk you feel is worthwhile. Um, yeah, I think they're just trying to put it out there at this point. Yeah, I think so, too. Um so anyway, I, you know, and as far as any criticism about it being like a press grab or just trying to grab the spotlight while it can, I don't know what to say about that. Maybe, I, maybe I'm not as cynical as some people, but um, right now I will say that going into a museum and looking at a lot, a lot of art feels very, very good and very, very different from the kind of um, in and out day to day of COVID life. With that, uh, if you're listening to this, it means the building is open. So yeah. if you want to, uh, go see some art. Go see some art. Mm -hmm.